I think we're living in the golden age of space exploration. The moon is really close by. We can be there, I think, between 2025 and 2030. There'll be missions to the moon, around the moon on the gateway, then to the surface, building a base, having a more sustainable presence. And then after this, we could be in good shape to go to Mars. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Thomas Piskey, a European astronaut who's preparing to blast off for the International Space Station. Later in the programme, you'll hear directly from Piskey and his colleague, Samantha Cristoforetti. We'll discuss their upcoming missions, where Europe fits into the final frontier and the search for the next generation of European astronauts. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. Uh, hi to Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Good morning. Actually, I'm in Brandenburg. Okay, <laughs> well, I didn't know if we wanted to get into that, but uh, you're always a stickler for accuracy. You're absolutely right. You're outside Berlin. Welcome. Thank you. And in Brussels, our EU-China correspondent, Stuart Lau. Hi, Stuart. Hello. So we're going to catch up on some uh, developments in EU-China relations, which we haven't had the chance to talk about in depth. And this is a kind of row or, or multiple rows that are rumbling on, if you like. But Stuart, I don't know if you want to just talk us through what happened a couple of weeks ago where we saw sanctions imposed from the EU and then a stronger than expected, at least as far as the EU is concerned, a stronger than expected response from Beijing. Do you want to just uh, bring us up to speed on what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So it was the EU that kicked off this wave of sanctions by imposing sanctions on four individuals responsible for what they see as um, human rights violations in Xinjiang against the Uyghur population there. And China responded quite fiercely, even though the EU actually did it together with the US, with the UK and with Canada on the same day. So they sanctioned not only five members of the European Parliament, but also the Human Rights Committee of the European Parliament, as well as the Political and Security Committee of the Council. And on top of that, there was also a sanction against Merics, which is a very well-regarded think tank specializing in China affairs in Berlin. And then a few days later, China also imposed similar sanctions against the UK and then to a smaller scale, the US and Canada. Right. And what's your reading of it, Stuart? Why did China respond so fiercely? Having just, I guess, one of the questions we're, we're asking is, having only recently concluded this investment deal, which we've talked about before between China and the EU, which to enter into force requires the approval of the European Parliament, why go so hard with these sanctions, which include sanctions against members of the European Parliament? What do you think is the calculus here from Beijing? There's definitely a commercial dimension and a political dimension here. So commercially, of course, you know, the cotton industry is a big thing in Xinjiang. And right now, as everyone is talking about, you know, boycotting cotton imported from Xinjiang and the EU sort of also introducing similar sanctions, you know, shedding light on this problem. And so China definitely sees a need to sort of send a very clear signal to Europe as well as to the companies basically telling them to stop boycotting anything from Xinjiang from now on. And the political dimension is that since Biden came to power, he has been sort of mustering this alliance with the European allies, uh, with the UK. And the Quad, if you remember, there's this Asia-Pacific grouping with India, Japan and Australia. So China definitely sees a growing trend 
of what looks like a containment strategy being pushed by the Americans. And so I think that's also why Beijing wants to send a very clear signal to Europe to stop doing that. Mm, interesting. Well, Matt, what do you make of all this? Well, I do think that it's a very important moment because there had been this big question, I think, with Biden coming in about how Europe was going to react to this pressure that the United States has been putting on China already under Trump, obviously. And it's something where there is consensus in the United States now that China needs to be stood up to, needs to be dealt with more forcefully. They see China as a basically systemic threat to the West. And there was, I think, a lot of doubt about whether the Europeans were going to stand shoulder to shoulder with the United States on this question. I think there probably still is some question about that. But it is a sign that the Biden administration has succeeded in opening the eyes, as it were, I think, to the Europeans to what is actually going on in China and what is at stake here in the long term. And I think this is going to continue. It's a very difficult question for Europe, uh, just as it is for the United States, but that the Europeans are very heavily invested in China. So there's a lot at stake here mm. for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, that was one of my questions. If Europe is kind of changing course politically, you know, is the European economy prepared for that? Because it doesn't sound like it is, right? The European economy has been going full steam ahead and ever closer links with China. Right. They're absolutely not prepared. And especially right now, if you look at the sort of relative stability with, you know, highlighting relative right now during the pandemic, especially in the German economy, a lot of that export stability is coming from China, also from the United States. But the Chinese and other Asian countries have come out of the pandemic already better than the Western countries. And this conversely, you know, is another sort of front in this PR battle where you, you have these sort of larger systemic questions now being raised with even people in the West saying, well, the, the Chinese are showing that, you know, their system actually works pretty well and that, you know, they've actually done, you know, a pretty good job of dealing with COVID, you know, I think, which is something that scares a lot of us in the West who look at how they got there and wonder if that is really something that other countries around the world should be pursuing. But they've also been very aggressive, as Stuart knows, with their vaccine strategy by, you know, giving the vaccine effectively to poor countries, creating goodwill there. Whereas in the United States, for example, they're not exporting anything at the moment. And the same is true for the UK. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of sort of plates shifting here. And it does feel like quite a, an important moment now between the US and the West and Asia. Mm. What do you make of it, Reem, particularly, you know, looking from Paris? You know, it's an interesting perspective from Paris, because for the longest time, Emmanuel Macron kept saying, you know, he doesn't want to be positioning on either side, either with China against the US or with the US against China, that he was trying to find a third way. But the way it's looking from here is that the last few weeks, the events of the last few weeks, the behavior from the Chinese side in the last few weeks uh, is actually pushing him into a corner. He is having to to choose and he can only choose really to be on the US side, given the vociferous aggression that the Chinese authorities are showing French members of parliament, French researchers, think tankers. The embassy here has behaved in, in a completely unusual way for any diplomatic 
representation. They have very explicitly, publicly on Twitter attacked members of parliament, French members of parliament, French members of the European parliament, French researchers. And so of course, the Chinese ambassador was summoned to the uh, foreign ministry, but in a sign of just how intransigent the current Chinese position is, the first day he basically refused to go to the summoning and he pretended that he had a call with Beijing at the same time and basically told the French foreign ministry, I don't have time for you. And then the next day he did come, but by the admission of the French foreign minister, he'd refused to apologize for all of that behavior. And so, you know, the French are left in a difficult place because clearly they don't have the means to confront China the way the US does. And it's not necessarily in, in their same interest. And they are trying to uh, sort of position in that way that the European Commission defined, which is that, uh, you know, China is a competitor, it's a rival, but it can also be a partner in some ways. But it seems like they are at a moment of choice. And this is really kind of a, a moment where they're going to have to choose how to go forward. But I think that's why this this whole idea of the competitor partner rival thing is is really now coming into question. And, you know, I think some people were very skeptical, not to mention any names of this idea from the beginning, because, you know, it's contradictory. I mean, it's very difficult to be a partner rival and a competitor at the same time. And I think that we're really seeing that now. So I, I think for many European countries, in particular, the Germans, it's becoming more and more difficult to ignore the human rights abuses. And the situation on the French side is the same, because, you know, the French always say that they are the country of universal human rights and that these are, you know, universal values that they have to stand up for. But when you look closely, the French foreign ministry is the one who has been very explicit in pointing out these human rights violations in Xinjiang. But Macron is, is very shy when it comes to saying things on Xinjiang very explicitly. Even in the last readout of his call with Xi, they didn't mention that he spoke about Xinjiang, even though French Elysee officials did tell me afterwards that, of course, he did bring it up. Mm, but he didn't want to say so publicly. And this, I mean, we've seen this obviously for, for years, this reluctance. But as you say, it does seem to be, things seem to be coming to a head now. And But the politics and the economics don't seem to be aligned. The reluctance to a large extent has been for economic reasons. But it seems now that, that the politics kind of come to the fore and forcing perhaps a rethink on the economic side as well. Stuart, where do you see this going from here? I think Matt has a point like earlier on when he said, you know, this partner competitor rival thing. I mean, how can you actually strike the right balance? I think, you know, from the Chinese perspective, it's never possible to separate politics from business. I mean, if you are a country that we like, of course, we trade with you. But, you know, you look at Australia, if you dare bring up, you know, WHO organ, you know, investigation in what happened in Wuhan, of course, we stop buying your wine. I mean, that's as simple as that. And so right now, I think, you know, you look at what's happening to H&M, you know, this Swedish brand, you know, boycotting, you know, Xinjiang cotton. Or if you look at, you know, Hugo Boss, I mean, the German brand, I mean, initially they said, OK, we'll stop buying Xinjiang cotton. And then they said, OK, maybe we would buy it again. And then later on, the headquarters saying, no, 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 we're still not buying. So the Chinese netizens are angry. They're furious about this sort of lack of commitment to the Chinese market, to the, you know, what they like to say, the feeling of the Chinese people. And so I think it's a really delicate, if not difficult balance for a lot of European companies, European governments to strike the right balance. Because what China doesn't like on the government level, absolutely, is that you talk about human rights on one hand, 
but you still talk about a trade deal on the other. I mean, that's actually getting Beijing really, really pissed off. I guess looking forward, what's really interesting, of course, is the CHI, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment between the EU and China. Whether the MEPs, you know, given the current situation of the, you know, the sanctions against some of their members. Whether they're still happy to ratify the deal, whether they're still willing to give it a, a try, and the other one, of course, is looking at the sanctions themselves. Whether the European governments are prepared to escalate, or whether they are themselves trying to calm the whole thing down, whether they're trying to, you know, show to Beijing, no, 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 let's stop here, let's not move any further. But then, if the precondition for the the agreement's ratification is for China to remove the sanctions. Absolutely not. I find it very difficult to see why Beijing would actually take the step to, you know, withdraw those sanctions they've already imposed on the European people. Okay. Any quick final thoughts before we go? I would just say that the whole situation seems to be quite unpredictable, and I think that's what the Europeans just discovered. Nobody was expecting this kind of retaliation from China for what seemed from the European side to be pretty mild sanctions that were more symbolic than anything else. And they really came back with kind of a sledgehammer, the Chinese. So I, I think it's going to continue to be a wild ride. I expect that the Europeans, now that they're spooked, will try to find some way to calm the waters. But uh, just looking at the Twitter feeds of various Chinese diplomats suggests that that's not going to be so easy. Okay, yeah, you highlighted one from the Chinese embassy in Ireland. It has a picture of the wolf and the lamb from Aesop's Fables. And the tweet is, who is the wolf? Some people accuse China for so-called wolf warrior diplomacy. In his well-known fable, Aesop described how the wolf accused the lamb of committing offences. The wolf is the wolf, not the lamb. BTW, China is not a lamb. I'm not sure what that means, but it, it sounds menacing. It means China's the wolf. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, and watch out. <laughs> Stuart, do you have any interpretation? Do you have any extra, you know, cultural uh, lens you can see that through? Or is it, as Reem suggested before we started, more like reminiscent of a kind of wise guy, mafia threat? No, I saw a sort of interpretation from an American guy who used to work in Beijing. So I think his take was... China is trying to tell everyone they are not the wolf. The West is the wolf because they're attacking China. But at the same time, China is not as weak as a lamb. I think that's probably what they try to say. Okay, right. Well, that's one to ponder on. Stuart, Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, just before our next item, I wanted to mention a special edition of the podcast honouring the life and career of Stephen Brown our editor-in-chief, who died unexpectedly of a heart attack just a couple of weeks ago. We believe it's a story well worth telling if you're interested in journalism, in the story of Politico in Europe, and in getting to know a truly remarkable person. I hope you'll take some time to listen. You'll find it in your feed or on your app in the coming days. And we'll also include a link to it in our show notes next week. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? 
EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. Now we're going to boldly go where this podcast has never gone before, to talk about Europe's efforts in space and about the European Space Agency's current search for a new group of astronauts. ESA is on the hunt for new astronauts. As the fourth call for applicants since 1978, it's a rare opportunity for talented individuals to work at the cutting edge of spaceflight. That's part of a promotion by the European Space Agency, or ESA for short, to encourage a diversity of applicants. And perhaps even one of our EU confidential listeners will be among those considering throwing their hat or space helmet into the ring. You'll hear more about that in just a moment, and you'll hear from two of Europe's current astronauts who are preparing for upcoming missions. To tell us more, let's bring in our Berlin-based senior policy reporter, Hello Space Boy, Josh Posaner. Hi, Andrew. Do you get that reference, or is that, are you too young for that? Uh, I'm too young, I think. <laughs> okay, it's David Bowie and the Pet Shop Boys. Ah, okay. okay. Anyway, uh, let's get down to business. So you've recently spoken with two astronauts in the current group of European astronauts. Tell us a bit about who they are. Yeah, so in the last uh, few weeks, we've spoken to Thomas Pesquet. He's a, a French astronaut who's been to the International Space Station already, and he'll soon go back. He'll also be the first European astronaut to fly on a SpaceX rocket. That's the company founded by Elon Musk that's really disrupting the space sector at the moment. We also had the luck to speak with Samantha Cristoforetti. She's a former Italian fighter pilot who is due to launch to the ISS next year. She's also the only woman in the current European cohort of astronauts. That's something she and ESA are hoping to change with the new group of recruits they're looking for at the moment. Okay, so as you say, they're both preparing for upcoming missions, one very soon, uh, one next year. But what does that actually involve? Yeah, so Thomas's mission is right around the corner. It's currently scheduled for launch on April the 22nd from the uh, Kennedy Space Center in the US. When we spoke to him a few weeks ago, here's how he described things. Right now, we... We do a lot of exercises because it kind of ramps up. You have to be in the best shape you possibly can for launch because you lose muscle mass, you lose bone mass because there's so many muscles that you don't use just floating around. So uh, physical training is ramping up. Lots of things we've already done, actually. The spacewalk training in the suit is complete. We've had our last run in the pool. Now we're focusing on the on um, scientific experiments as well. And then I think we'll take some rest at some point, try to spend time with the families before the final preparations in uh, KSC, Kennedy Space Center, Cape Canaveral, and uh, blasting off into space. And now on to the other astronaut, Samantha, who isn't scheduled to launch until next year. But even so, her preparations for the launch are already well underway. Life changes completely in the moment when you get assigned to a space mission and start training. You basically turn over the keys to your life all the way up to takeoff to launch and then in flight and even in the first few months after post-flight because people have to really make 
the best use of your time to make sure that you get all the training done that you need to get done by then, to make sure that, I don't know, you're in the same continent as your crewmates, uh, you know, when you have to do a joint crew training, to make sure that you do all your medical examinations, that you do all your so-called baseline data collections. Is that the experiments you'll do or is that your own health data that you have to give? So the baseline data collection is related to your science complement and for all the experiments that are on, on the human, so for which you as an astronaut are not only the operator, but actually the subject, the object of the observation, the scientists need baseline data. So they need to run that same experiment on you one, two, sometimes even three times before flight so that they have a baseline with which then they can compare and see, oh, this is how spaceflight made this value change. And so obviously when you get up there, you'll be doing experiments, but partially the experiment is yourself. How does the human body react in, in these conditions? But the last time you were at the ISS also, you were notoriously the first astronaut to brew an espresso at the International Space Station. Is that right? Do you have any alternative plans? Is there a next level for this journey? <laughs> yeah, sometimes I have the feeling that there is no way to beat the, the espresso machine, <laughs> which is not up there anymore, by the way, so I'll have to figure something out. Okay, Josh, let's maybe take a step back. Can you tell us what the European Space Agency actually does and maybe what it can do and what it can't do? Yeah, so as Samantha described to us, space exploration is one aspect of what ESA does. But there are other important ways that Europeans are involved in space programs and research. The EU, the European Commission, leads work on civil projects. It has satellite constellations like Galileo, a GPS alternative, also Copernicus, which beams back Earth imagery. ESA assists on those two, but it isn't part of the EU structure. So instead, ESA is the agency dealing with NASA on big research projects, also, of course, training the astronauts and dealing with big exploration projects. The next big step from an EU front is setting up a communication satellite network that can offer broadband. That's something ESA will be involved with too, but it's unclear how that will be paid for. We'll know more later this year. But one thing Europe doesn't yet have is the ability to launch its own astronauts. To be fair, of course, we, we do have a European autonomous access to space, just not for humans. But we are, of course, capable of launching satellites. And that is a big part of, uh, you know, strategic independence when it comes to space assets. But indeed, I mean, I'm, I'm an astronaut. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm very, that's very close to my heart, launching humans to space. And uh, personally, I would be thrilled if one day we, we actually get there. It's also part of this uh, evolution of making uh, travel into space more normal. I also spoke to Thomas, who is set to launch aboard a SpaceX rocket, about whether Europe needs that access itself. I think it's a question that's, that's been around for a lot of time. We've been close in the, in the 90s, but then due to several factors, and one of them was actually the collapse of the Soviet Union and the reunification of Germany, which created a lot of... I mean, Germany had to reallocate their funds in a different way because of this. And one of the victims was that project that we had, was was called the Hermes space plane, European space plane. And Germany, unfortunately, I don't blame them, had to kind of pull out because it was not a priority anymore. And then the remaining countries couldn't really support the program by themselves. So we were close. But anyway, let's not look at the past. I think nowadays things are becoming more and more integrated. If you look at um, the Artemis program, the lunar initiative led by NASA, but in which ESA is part and lots of other agencies are part, uh, what's important is that everybody's doing 
their part and providing something critical to the project. So maybe we won't have a human-rated launcher ever. I, I certainly wish we had. I think we could do it if there's a will. But if we don't, I think as long as we have something to put on the table, that's not additional. It's not It's not some side you know, capacity to the mission that the mission could go on without it. It's just nice to have. But if we're a critical partner in a global partnership, then we'll be fine because a mission to Mars or missions to Mars, they're going to be so costly, such a lofty goal that you cannot really duplicate all the efforts throughout the world, right? You, you, everybody has to bring something to the table and then globally we'll be able to go. So based on what he just said about missions to Mars being a truly global effort, how does Europe fit into that picture? Yeah, Thomas pointed to a number of things. Uh, Europe has historically been a leader in commercial satellite launches with its Ariana 5 rocket. But that position is now under threat from SpaceX, especially over recent years. Thomas said Europe could still surpass Elon Musk if countries put their minds and, crucially, their money behind it. The big question is what Europe, especially as a global secondary space power, has to offer. You mean apart from food? <laughs> I mean, right now, if I look at... Um, it's always heritage of things we've, we've done before, right? We have a hugely reliable launcher Ariane. I mean, Ariane 5 is just a fantastic success story. Now it's a little bit overshadowed by SpaceX's Falcon 9, which is much more recent. But we shouldn't forget that we've been the most reliable launch services provider and the most successful commercially for the past 20 years. Generally speaking, I would say it might be a little bit bold, but we'll do technically we're the best <laughs> we're just not it's just difficult to be sometimes on the same page because europe is complicated uh, because everybody has national interests because we tend to pick up fights with one another or or be envious or whatever i mean i think if we were more integrated or cooperative we could easily be much better than anybody else because technically we're doing better but then we usually make our lives more complicated even better than elon musk Oh yeah, even better than Elon Musk. I mean, he's got a step. He's got a step. He's a step ahead of us for now. But we could do the same, I think, if we wanted to. Okay, so while those two astronauts are preparing to fly to space, as we mentioned, uh, the European Space Agency is now actively looking for a new astronaut core. What kind of people are they looking for? Yeah, so ESA is definitely keen to get a wide variety of applicants, uh, different backgrounds, skills, expertise, experiences. First off, you have to be from one of the 22 ESA member states or its two associate members. Then applicants must have a minimum of a master's degree in subjects, for example, things like natural sciences, medicine, engineering, uh, mathematics, or computer sciences. Three years of professional experience after graduation is also one of the criteria. Or they could also have a degree as an experimental test pilot or test engineer. Uh, it's also important to know that they're actively seeking those with physical disabilities and they've put a strong emphasis on recruiting more women. That's something we talked about with Samantha. There are, for example, many, many young women out there who have those qualifications. It's just a matter of, I think, sending the proper message, which is... We want the broadest possible pool of applicants because we really feel that it's hard to judge yourself. So we want the broadest possible pool of applicants to apply and give us a chance to find the right people and the right mix of people. 
And so we, we have the criteria for the application already out on the, the ESA website. But from a personal perspective, having been an astronaut for quite some time now, but also I understand even even as a kid, you were very in, involved in space activities. What are the personal characteristics that one needs? Patience or determination, motivation? What, what do you think? What kind of person do you need to be to be an astronaut? <laughs> all, all of the above, of course, <laughs> you need all those things. But in, in the end, I think you need to be a well-rounded individual. I mean, this is not a work for somebody who is uh, very specialist-minded. It's more about really enjoying challenges that span from, you know, learning Russian to, you know, keeping yourself fit from a physical point of view to working demanding schedules to, you know, flying to space to learning how to operate a space vehicle. So it's more about really this broad diversity of things that you need to, you know, be able to learn, but you also really need to enjoy that, you know, it needs to be part of what you like to do. Interesting. And any sense of a timeline for their recruitment? When might they actually end up being astronauts? Yes. So the applications on ESA's career website opened on March the 31st and will close on May the 28th. They're apparently looking for four to six new astronauts from across Europe and even more to be on the reserve list. They'll also announce their final selections in October 2022. For these new astronauts, Thomas argues they are entering the program, an extraordinary time for space travel. I think we're living in the golden age of space exploration. Sometimes, especially at the beginning of my career, people were saying, yeah, you know, the golden age of space exploration was the Apollo missions in the 60s. And that was absolutely fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But I think today it's so exciting. There's never been, you know, as many spaceships. There's the Crew Dragon. There's going to be uh, one from Boeing, there's lots of suborbital, Virgin Galactic, others, and it's really kind of a space age that's beginning. I mean, long story short, I think we're, the moon is really close by. We, we can be there, maybe not in 2024, but I think between 2025 and 2030, there'll be missions to the moon, around the moon on the gateway, then to the surface, building a base, having a more sustainable presence. And then after this, so 2035, we could be in good shape to go to Mars. Okay, fascinating stuff. Thanks very much, Josh. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And we're happy to receive your feedback or ideas for guests or topics. You can email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.